Hello, all you beautiful listeners out there. Welcome to another episode of The Imposter, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging for you, the audience. All right, so today's episode is very exciting. I've actually I've wanted to do it for quite some time, and I saw that some other people did it, and so I got a bit disheartened, and then recently I was just kind of like, screw it, I'm going to do it anyway, because I love this topic, and it's really cool, and you could literally go on and on and on about it, but I've condensed it quite a lot, so I hope you enjoy today's episode. I definitely enjoyed reading it, and I definitely got sidetracked a lot, because it's just so multifaceted. Uh, and there are a lot of nerds out there, I will say that. Why am I saying that? Well, you'll just have to listen to this imposter episode to find out. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. Knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science literature you are. And we are back. Hello once again, everyone. So today's episode is one of extreme importance. It deals with a seemingly natural pull that we humans tend to experience. In cultures and communities around the world, examples of human-like beings with supernatural powers are commonly found. Now, whether it's the humanoid creatures of Greek mythology, the Taniabatwa people said to ride ants in Zulu mythology, the still relevant, though often misrepresented, zombies of Haitian culture, we have vampires and leprechauns, Slenderman, Mothman, I mean, even images of gods and demons take human-like forms. The list truly goes on and on and on. Now, some folks offer the perspective that humans have jumped to these beliefs as a way to enforce checks and balances in society. Others as a form of escape, an exercise in imagination and storytelling to help lighten the hardships that is life. Now, an additional perspective being offered brings the element of self-preservation to the table. A yearning, if you will, for powers that enable you to elevate your chances of survival or, at the very least, have control over some sort of being that would elevate your chances of survival. What comes to mind in this case is the golem of Jewish folklore. And if you're not familiar with the story, I'll briefly just give you the rundown. Essentially, the golem is a Hulk-like creature made up of clay and brought to life through magic, and whoever constructs it and brings it to life has control over it, and basically the golem does the bidding of its creator. So there you have it. You are all Jewish folklore scholars. You take that back to your professor, all right? You show them that degree. Anyway, these thoughts of the supernatural are not just old remnants of past stories. 
You see, with the emergence of film and radio and comic books in the 20th century, the idea of superpowers just kind of exploded onto the scene, and it only continues to grow. I know I personally have tried to attain superpowers by antagonizing animals that I suspect might be radioactive, and to my dismay, I've only endured long hospital stays and a suppressed immune system. But, like my favorite space traveler, I will never give up and never surrender. Now, today, even if you don't read comic books or graphic novels, like myself, you are still exposed to a plethora of superhero films. Even if you have no interest in any of that, you still are forced to confront the fact that the Avengers and Batman and Iron Man and all the superhero movies that have come out in the last, like, five to ten years are very, very mainstream. And and because these superpowers and superheroes are so prevalent in today's culture and society, I thought it would be an interesting topic to explore today. I will just add the caveat that, yes, this topic has been done before in different places. However, it's never been done on the imposter, and it's never been done the imposter way. You know what I'm saying? So yes, we will be exploring some of the science behind these fantastical fictions. In the interest of full disclosure, I will say that this topic has intrigued me from the 8th grade. I remember it like yesterday. I was walking into Mrs. Gupta's chemistry class when I was handed a piece of paper that truly broke my heart. No, I, it was not a breakup letter. I did all my breakups through my spiffy calculator watch. I was that cool. No, 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 this was, this was much worse than a breakup. You see, I was handed an article explaining the impossibility of the mutants from X-Men. Now, of course, deep down, I knew this to be true, but it hurt very much, nonetheless, that I would never get to live out my dream of being Wolverine, or at the very least, Magneto. Okay, so fast forward to today's episode, and now we're going to revisit some of the science behind my superhero heartbreak. And, as a bonus, we're going to hear from a few of my peers about what superpowers they would choose. As with most topics we discuss on The Imposter, I like to think that there's value in knowing at least a little background in history. When it comes to superheroes of the 20th century, a common theme throughout the many comic book universes, whether it's DC or Marvel or Image or whatever, is tackling relevant social and cultural issues. We see this both through story arcs as well as through the actual creation of characters. It's the latter, the creation of characters and their origin stories, if you will, that we'll begin our observations on. Now, among the various ways in which superheroes become, quote, super, the scientific explanation are, in my opinion, the most fun and, as well, the most telling. So, in doing some of the research for this episode, I was reading online that a lot of the cutting edge of science, the real popularized advances and accomplishments of the time, are often mirrored in comic books and their associated storylines. And, you know, there were pulp magazines, and if you really want to get into it, I would say that the first comic book superhero is the Phantom, but we're not getting into that discussion now. No, we're going to go into the first really big popular hit superhero, which is Superman. 
1938 Action Comics, one could argue that Superman, coming from an advanced alien civilization way out somewhere in the galaxy, was a sort of nod to the beginning of the space race and space exploration and, and the human fascination with the cosmos. And to, to really get into that, you need to think about the time. And like I say in many imposter episodes, that during wartime there are a lot of advances in technology. And this is apparent in the First and Second World War, where we are having planes that are going higher and higher in the atmosphere. And we are starting to compete with you know, the, the Nazis and the Russians making rockets. And, you know, that is really the beginning of the space race. But I think a stronger argument that shows how science is mirrored in comic books is the introduction, not long after Superman, of Batman and his infamous gadgets and futuristic modes of transportation. And, you know, this is echoing the advances and the interest in technology that, again, was booming during the First and Second World Wars. And Batman is not the only comic book character that shows this interest in technology and gadgets and whatnot. I mean, this is, again, reinforced by Green Arrow and his crazy arrows that have all kind of gizmos attached to it, uh, as well as the Atom and the advanced civilization of Atlantis, which is actually found in both Marvel and DC universes, though are completely separate, because, hey, if you're not confused enough by the whole superpower thing, let's just make everything more convoluted. Anyway, the point is, is that as we became more developed and advanced in our technology in the real world, so did the curiosity and the advancements of technology in the comic book world. Now, Past the dropping of the A-bomb in World War II, we head into the 50s and 60s and the height of the Red Scare, where, if you are not familiar with your history, it was a sort of imminent threat of a nuclear attack. Or, if you want to use the George Bushism, nuclear attack. Now, words like nuclear and radioactive were previously not commonly heard in the everyday life and jargon of your average citizen but they became quite prevalent very quickly. So the focus and worries that plagued the minds of the citizens, at least in the United States, shifted in tandem with the focus and worries of those in the comics. And we see this with the introduction of a few different characters. Uh, for example, Spider-Man being bit by a radioactive spider, Bruce Banner getting blasted by gamma rays triggering a mutation and turning him into the Hulk, there's the radioactive blast from the Fantastic Four, Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen, uh, Captain Adam, Daredevil. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And, you know, at the time, radiation was this mysterious word belonging to scientists and politicians. And the possibilities for science fiction writers and in the realm of sci-fi seemed endless. So it's to be expected that they, you know, it was a new tool for them to play with. Now... If there's any psychologists or anthropologists listening to this, I would love to have you come on uh, and we can discuss the mindset of a very paranoid nation in the 50s and 60s, because that's very interesting to me. But we're getting off topic. So now we get to the 70s and 80s, 
And what's been budding and brewing has now come to fruition, and the field of genomics has now blown up and is expanding and getting a lot of popularity. And this is evident first with the 1971 uh, gene splicing experiment, and then followed up by the 1973 monumental development of genetic engineering in living organisms, both by Herbert Boyan and Stanley Cohen. And so we begin to see a slight shift away from these radioactive origins to ones that focus more on changing your DNA and gene splicing and mixing and matching. And you have characters like the X-Men gaining in popularity and many villains, for that matter, that are all about changing their DNA or combining it with an animal's DNA. And that, that really starts to gain momentum. Now, it's around this time in the 70s and 80s that we also start to come back full circle. And you have the interest in uh, technology come back again with characters like Astro Boy, Cyborg, Deathlock, villains like Ultron. And we also come full circle when it comes to space exploration. We have the Guardians of the Galaxy. We have a lot of storylines that take place in different universes and different galaxies. And so, like I said, it really just brought things full circle and to where we are today. You might be wondering, what does the future hold? And I'm going to answer that question with another question, because who doesn't love that answer? You simply have to ask, what area of science will excite the public, but at the same time mystify the scientists? And I can see quantum physics becoming a topic that gets more publication. It already has gotten some, and we'll talk about it more in this episode, but... That is definitely an area that is not fully understood and has a lot of possibilities. Coming up, we'll start getting into the actual science of superpowers, and then we're going to hear from some scientists about what powers they would have. Okay, so in the interest of time and everybody's sanity, I'm going to narrow the next segment down by choosing one power that is more improbable and one power that has more potential to be feasible. Now, we'll start with the least feasible power, and this one was hard to choose, because trust me, there's a lot, but we're going to be talking about the biology of super strength. Now, when you think about characters like Superman, The Flash, Captain America, all these characters and more exhibit, for example, the ability to run really fast or jump really high. And this poses some troubling biological problems. You see, running at high speeds would run down the joints, the tendons, and connective tissues fairly rapidly, much like injuries from playing years of professional sports, except they would happen in a matter of seconds, or if you're lucky, minutes. But let's say that you're cool with speed-induced arthritis and the potential for your skin to fall off. We need to tackle another serious issue. Alright, so you've accelerated and you're currently running. Now we need to deal with stopping. So, if you need to decelerate after running really fast and you do it instantly, you might experience a few different things. You see, your bones, for example, might be breaking. And not just one or two, but many bones. They also might pop out of the meat sack that is your body. You might also suffer from a horrible case of whiplash and or just a broken neck. And frankly, whatever shoes you may have had on at the time would probably be either burned off, or if you're really lucky, fused to your now road-rashed soles. Now all of that is if you manage to stay standing up and you don't topple over from the force. 
So as we're learning, slowing down would take time and focus, and all keeping in mind that you're not colliding with anything along the way when you're going these super speeds. It's also important to keep in mind that your blood flow would be changing, much like the physiological effects that astronauts and jet fighters have and experience. You see, the human body, if it was running at, let's say, 3 Gs, would have to compensate three times the blood pressure that you would normally, which is roughly 66 millimeters of mercury blood pressure, which is the measurement that's used. And this would be needed to get adequate blood flow from the heart to the brain without the aid of devices. And I say that because these devices are what jet pilots use, and an example of that is an air bladder that basically manually pumps the blood around your body. They also have oxygen masks, which, you know, just slightly important. Now, the average human body will usually pass out between 4 to 6 Gs from all the blood pooling in your feet. And if you're running really fast, I suppose that that actually might help pump the blood from your feet to other extremities in your body. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, as you can probably tell. But let's just say that you do get some adequate blood flow going through. Can you really withstand the g-force that you're going to be experiencing going at these top speeds? Well, well, we'll dig into that a bit. Let me take you back to 1954, when a man named John Stapp broke expectations by withstanding 46.2 g's. Mr. Stapp accelerated to 632 miles per hour in five seconds in his nine solid fuel rocket sled. I mean, just, just the term rocket sled makes it sound like it's out of a comic book. But anyway, for a brief instant, Mr. Stapp went from 168 pounds to 7,700 pounds. Now, this record was broken in 1970 by Major John Beeding, a volunteer of the Air Force, who, for just a mere .04 seconds, experienced 83 Gs on his rocket sled. Again, it is so fun to say rocket sled. I, I'm so glad that these fellows used that. Anyway, the point is, is that even though it was only a short amount of time, he still lived to tell the tale. And though humans can withstand a pretty impressive amount of g-force, we can only do so briefly before we begin to disintegrate. Which I think is a pretty important point if you're going to be going super speeds for longer than a few seconds, or fraction of a second. Now, I think another important factor that we need to consider is that going at these super speeds would produce a very powerful amount of friction with the surrounding air that would subsequently ignite us on fire much like a meteor burst into flames when it burns through Earth's atmosphere. So we have a few different examples, and there are more, of what just super speed, one faction of super strength, would have on the human body. Okay, so I do have to say that attaining the actual ability to have super strength isn't impossible. Perhaps it's even on the horizon. For the better part of a decade, researchers in California and Switzerland have been experimenting with the genome regulator NCOR1, which modulates the genes that regulate thyroid function and the distribution of thyroid hormones. Now, the results in mice have been an increased muscle strength and endurance in physical activities. Now, the real-world application to this, and 
probably what they said on their grant funding application, is that the intention is to help the geriatric and the disabled communities that experience atrophy of the muscles from either aging or a sedentary lifestyle. This research, I gotta say, is very commendable and very well-intentioned, and I can imagine it's gonna benefit not just those communities, but probably everybody in everyday life eventually. But my, my qualm is that it focuses on the muscles. And so my dispute with super strength is not so much that it isn't possible, but that we don't know what the effect on the body is going to be. And from what I can read, these experiments don't seem to mention anything about the effect on bone density, tendon and ligament strength, long and short-term damage to the muscular skeletal system from prolonged increased activity. I mean, these are serious issues that need to be raised. When Captain America jumps from a fourth-story building, how is it that he has no damage to his feet bones, his tib-fib, his patella, also known as the kneecap, or his femur, for that matter? I mean, yes, he has the ability to jump high, but what happens when the impact from jumping high occurs? It seems that the reaction to the action doesn't get the light that needs to be shed on it, if you know what I'm saying. So... Though there are numerous more examples demonstrating the boundaries of the body in the face of biological upgrades, this is why I personally think that super strength as a concept is one of the more improbable powers, in my opinion, with the caveat that if you have an, exo an exoskeleton suit, much like in The Matrix and the Alien movies and probably other ones that I'm not mentioning right now, uh, you know, your physical body is actually not being impacted. It's all covered by some sort of robotic skeleton. So I'll, I'll give you that, folks. But for those of you that are hoping to have your bones infused with a very dense and heavy metal like adamantium, you might want to think twice before you experience life without bone marrow production. And I will say it's probably a short life at that. As well, you will be limited to only being in the kiddie pool because you'll be way too heavy to swim. Alright, so I think enough dreams have been crushed, including my own. Let's get into some of the fun stuff. When it comes to superpowers, there is a given element of suspension of disbelief. So, while this next part we'll be talking about a superpower that could potentially be feasible, we are also already agreeing that the way in which these superheroes acquired their powers are phantasmical. Well, you know what I mean. Anyway, with that said, I have to admit it was very hard to narrow down which power to choose, as the last few years we've had a lot of cool advancements in bringing science fiction from the mind to the market. Things like invisibility cloaks, wall crawling, flying, are all beginning to emerge as viable technologies. If y'all are interested, I would implore you to check out the blog to find out more about the cool little superpowers that are coming to life via futuristic technologies. Now what I'm going to focus on now is something a bit more trippier. Something that might be possible way, 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 way further down the line in the future, maybe. So, for those of you that are familiar with the X-Man, or rather, I should say, X-Woman, Kitty Pride, aka Shadowcat, or The Flash, or Martian the Manhunter, and many others, these characters all possess the ability to phase through the walls like a ghost. So, how is this explained, and is it actually possible? Well, there are a few different explanations. The easiest one to explain is specific only to The Flash, where he is able to pass through objects and barriers 
by vibrating his cells to an insane frequency and by tapping into the magical energy known as the speed force. So good luck with that. But the more in-depth explanation for the other characters comes from the field of quantum mechanics, where things are interpreted through waves and energies. Now, I must give credit to many professors and researchers that are much, much smarter than me and more adept in the field. One including Professor James Cacalios of the University of Minnesota, and I hope I didn't butcher your name, who has authored a book called The Physics of Superheroes. And if you want, there is a video explanation which is posted on the blog as well that's very useful. Basically, the primary theory behind Shadowcat's ability to phase through walls is due to something called quantum tunneling. To understand quantum tunneling, we have to go down to the size of small particles like neutrons, protons, electrons, and all that jazz. You see, these subatomic particles are not located in specific definite places in time like larger objects in the macro world, such as you and me. They're found to be in a few different positions simultaneously. Try to imagine you're looking at a vibrating ball and you can't really pinpoint where exactly the ball actually is because it's moving so fast. That's kind of what it's like. These particles don't have a fixed location in space. They're just kind of everywhere. And in order to comprehend this type of explanation, physicists use the term or the idea of probability to describe these subatomic particles. So if we have an electron, for example, and it's located on one side of a wall, because the location of that electron is simultaneously up and down and side to side of that wall, quantum mechanics states that there is the probability of that electron also being located on the other side of the wall, as well as possibly in the wall itself. I mean, this is my own rough interpretation of quantum tunneling, so if you want a description from an actual expert that does this stuff every day, check out the blog because there's probably a bit better and less convoluted explanation than my own. But we do have real-world applications of quantum tunneling in everyday life. Things like cell phones, USB flash drives, computers. I mean, there's tons of examples that actually all use quantum tunneling. And work is being done to try and get larger objects to experience quantum tunneling as well. Now, the caveat is, when I say larger objects, I mean things that are a micrometer wide. So, you know, not really that big, but a lot bigger than the subatomic level. And unfortunately, we're pretty far off from anything remotely near the size of a human being being able to quantum tunnel. And that's due to the fact that those probabilities that we talked about in the subatomic realm start to become more finite the larger an object gets. So... This brings us back to Shadowcat, and the theory goes is that she can manipulate all the subatomic particles in her body at will to tunnel through objects and barriers. And if you're really interested, again, in the science behind this, there's more in-depth theories on the blog that cite lab experiments all about cooling atoms to near absolute zero and giving them the ability to pass through barriers and whatnot. I mean... There's also actually another book called The Science of X-Men that go into a very cool theory called Spintronics, and they apply it to Shadowcat 
uh, in the sense that she would have control over the spin of the electrons that make up her body, and similar to tunneling, manipulate at will the spin of all her particles to allow her to pass through walls. Now, like I said a few times, this stuff is pretty dense, so again, if you want some really great explanations of quantum tunneling and spintronics, check out the blog for videos and articles from actual experts. Okay, so coming up in our last segment, we're going to hear from a couple budding scientists about what superpowers they would choose and why. So in the true spirit of the imposter and engaging the general public with science and, you know, making it just a bit more fun and exciting, I thought it would be interesting to hear from some folks with a science background about what superpowers they would have. And right now we're going to hear first from a fellow MRES of Marine Biology at Plymouth University, a current PhD candidate and all-around awesome person, Malin Tietjen. Hiya, I'm Marlin, and I also did the Master of Research Marine Biology degree at Plymouth University. And back in November of last year, I've started a PhD, and I'm now working on the molecular mechanisms of the symbiosis between deep-sea bivalves and bacteria. So if I could choose to be any superhero I wanted to be, I would choose to be, of course, a marine organism. And cephalopods are my favorite group of organisms. So I would choose to be a little octopus that is able to camouflage and also control the mines. So my idea was that it can hop on the back of any marine animal it wants to and hitchhike through all the world's ocean because it can decide to which location the animal will swim. And because of that, it would never be detected. Wow, thank you very much, Marlon. That was very cool and also slightly concerning that I wouldn't know where you are. However, I do know that you would use your powers only for good, so I'm not as worried. Next up, we're going to hear from a familiar voice on this podcast, the mad scientist slash lovable grumpy grandpa, and also fellow MRES of Marine Biology from Plymouth, Duncan Morton. Hey, Fogel. My superhero, based on a marine or terrestrial organism, would be the Tardipool, based on the tardigrade or water bear. My powers would be being essentially unkillable. Tardigrades can survive temperatures from about negative 460 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 270 degrees Celsius, 70 degrees Celsius, all the way up to 300 degrees Fahrenheit, about 150 degrees Celsius. They can survive pressures in excess of 97,000 pounds per square inch which is more than six times the pressure you would experience at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. They can survive radiation levels a thousand times greater than the lethal dose for other animals, including humans. They have survived being dehydrated for nearly a decade, and there's been reported uh, limb movement in one after being dehydrated for over 120 years. They can live in the vacuum of space for up to 10 days without protection, and have shown incredible resistance to environmental toxins. Now, the reason that tardigrades are essentially unkillable is because they have an amazing ability to efficiently repair their DNA, which is why I link them to Deadpool, because he has ridiculous healing abilities. So, they can be destroyed, but the gap between what can kill them 
and what it takes to kill pretty much any other organism is so massive that they are considered one of, if not the most indestructible species. And I think what the most impressive thing is, is they're not actually classified as extremophiles because they are not technically adapted to, su to survive specifically in extreme environments. They don't thrive in these environments. They're just able to live in them if they have to. So they're not necessarily built to live in these crazy environments, but if you put them in one, they can sort of just shrug it off or hold out long enough for them to get back to an environment they were supposed to live in. That would be my superhero, the unkillable Tartapool. Thanks, Fogel. No, thank you, Duncan. Fantastic. Though, I will say, I take back being concerned at all by Malin, who I trust. Duncan, your indestructibility scares me far more, sir. Especially if you were to adapt Deadpool's personality. I will admit, though, you would be great guest at any Christmas party, so, you know, always get an invite. Now, I know you all are wondering, Amir, what would you choose? Because I care about your opinion. Quiet down, little porpoises, because I will tell you. I would be an insane combo of a slimy salamander for its adhesive slime that I could use to stick people in place, as well as secrete onto doorknobs, because, yes, I'm that kind of guy. I would also take the limbs of a red-eyed tree frog to jump long distances and climb vertically up walls, because who doesn't want that? Now, if I'm up on a wall, I don't have the best mobility with frog legs, aside from jumping and whatnot, so I'm going to take the flying squirrel's flabby skin to glide from high places like a wingsuit, and then the armor of an armadillo, so that I can always have a bit of a shield and protection in case my back is turned or I'm in a vulnerable spot. And finally, I'm going to take the bioluminescence of the velvet belly lantern shark, because, hey, being able to glow in the dark would just be friggin' awesome, you know? And also, it's a shark, so of course I'm gonna have to include that in my ideal superpower, so... Regardless, I'm gonna look pretty weird, so I'm kind of glad I don't have these, but also disappointed, because they sound pretty cool. But, yeah. So, there you have it. That is our show for today, though I will say, if you would like to share what your superpowers would be, Send send a little audio file, send a little clip. You can record it on your iPhone and email it to theimposterpodcast at gmail.com and we will put you in the next show. Other than that, don't forget to like and share us on Facebook. Subscribe to The Imposter Podcast on iTunes in the music store and um, share us with your friends and family. Spread the message of The Imposter because without you, there's no me. That's a song, right? the air that I breathe. I think that's that. I definitely didn't make that up. Well, anyway, you know what I'm saying. The point is, thanks for tuning in to the Imposter Podcast. We will see you next week. Have a fantastic weekend. And, yeah, toodaloo.